Part One, Chapter One of Non Combatants and Others by Rose Macaulay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Wood End. Chapter One. John Comes Home. In a green late April evening, among the dusky pine shadows, Alex drew Percival Briggs. Percival stood with his small cleft chin lifted truculently, small blue eyes deep under fair frowning brows, one scratched brown leg bare to the knee, dirty hands thrust into torn pockets. He was the worst little boy in the wood, and had been, till six months ago, the worst little boy in the Sunday school class of Alex's cousin Dorothy. He had not been converted six months ago, but Dorothy, like so many, had renounced Sunday school to work in a VAD hospital. Alex, who was drawing Percival, worked neither in a Sunday school nor in a hospital. She only drew. She drew till the green light became green gloom, lit by a golden star that peered down between the pines. She had a pale, narrow, delicate, irregular sort of face, broad-browed, with a queer, cynical, ironic touch to it, and purple-blue eyes that sometimes opened very wide and sometimes narrowed into slits. When they narrowed, she looked as from behind a visa, critical, defensive or amused. When they opened wide, she looked singularly unguarded, as if the bars were up and she, unprotected, might receive the enemy's point straight and clean. Behind her on the wood path was a small donkey between the shafts of a small cart. A rough yellow dog scratched and sniffed and explored among the roots of the trees. Alex said to Percival, That will do, thank you. Here you are. And fished out sixpence in coppers from her pocket, and he clutched and gripped them in a small retentive fist. Alex, who was rather lame, put her stool and easel and charcoal into the cart, got in herself, beat the donkey, and ambled off along the path, followed by the yellow dog. The evening was dim and green and smelt of pines. The donkey trotted past cottage gardens, and they were sweet with wallflowers. More stars came out and peered down through the treetops. Alex whistled softly a queer little Polish tune, indeterminate, sad and gay. 2. Two miles up the path, a side-track led off from it, and this the donkey-cart took till it fetched up in a little yard. Alex climbed out, unharnessed the donkey, put him to bed in a shed, collected her belongings and limped out of the yard leaning a little on the ivory-top stick she carried. She had had a diseased hip-joint as a child, which had left her right leg slightly contracted. She came round into a garden. It smelt of wallflowers and the other things which flower at the end of April, and underneath all these of pines. The pine-woods came close up to the garden's edge, crowding and humming like bees. Pine-needles strewed the lawn. The tennis lawn, it was most summers, but this summer one didn't play tennis. One was too busy. 
so the lawn was set with croquet hoops, a wretched game, but one which wounded soldiers can play. Dorothy used to bring them over from the hospital to spend the afternoon. An oblong of light lay across the lawn. It came from the drawing-room window, which ought, of course, to have been blinded against hostile aircraft. Alex, standing in the garden, saw inside. She saw Dorothy, just in from the hospital, still in her V.A.D. dress. The light shone on her fair wavy hair and fair pretty face. Not even a stiff linen collar could make Dorothy plain. Margot was there too, in the khaki uniform of the Women's Volunteer Reserve. She had just come in from drilling. She usually worked at the Woolwich Canteen in the evenings, but had this evening off because of John. She was making sandbags. Their mother, Alex's Aunt Eleanor, was pinning tickets on clothes for Belgians. She was tall and handsome, and like Alex's mother, only so different, and she was secretary of the local Belgian committee, as of many other committees, local and otherwise. She often wore a little worried frown, and was growing rather thin, on account of the habits of this unfortunate and scattered people. One of them had been their guest since November. She was in the drawing-room now, a plump, dark-eyed girl, knitting placidly and with the immense rapidity noticeable on the continent, and not to be emulated by islanders without exhaustion. Alex's uncle Gerald, a special constable, which was why he need not bother about his blinds much, stood by the small fire. They were wholesome people and not frowsty with an evening paper, but he was not reading it, he was talking to John. For among them the centre of the family was John, John wounded and just out of hospital and home on a month's sick leave, John with a red scar from his square jaw to his square forehead, stammering as he talked because the nerves of his tongue had been damaged. Alex, watching from the garden, saw the queer way his throat worked, struggling with some word. They were asking John questions, of course, sensible questions too. They were sensible people. They knew that the conduct of this campaign was not in John's hands, and that he did not know so much more about it than they did. The room, with its group of busy, attractive, efficient people, seemed to the watcher in the dark, piney garden, full of intelligence and war and softly shaded electric light. Alex narrowed her eyes against it and thought it would be paintable. 3. The dark round eyes of the Belgian girl, looking out through the window, met hers. She laughed and waved her knitting. She took Alex always as a huge joke. Alex had from the first taken care that she should, since the moment when Mademoiselle Vestigal had arrived, fluent with tales from Antwerp. It is a safe axiom that those who play the clown do not get confidences. The others looked out at her too when Mademoiselle Verstigel waved. They called out, Hello, Alex. How late you are. John's been here two hours. Come along. Alex limped up the steps and in at the French window, where she stood and blinked, the light on her pale, pointed face and narrowed eyes. John rose to meet her and she gave him her hand and her crooked smile. "'You're all right now, aren't you?' she said, 
and john an accurate person said very nearly while his mother returned i'm afraid he's a long way from all right yet isn't it funny it makes him stammer said dorothy who was professionally interested in wounds but he's getting quite nice and fat again not so fat as i was when i got hit said john the trenches are the best flesh-producing ground known high living and plain thinking and no exercise the only people who are getting thin out there are the stretcher-bearers who have to carry burdens the commander-in-chief who has to think the newspaper men who have to write when there's nothing to say and the chaplains who have to chaplain i met old leonard of cats walking about armentier in february and i thought he was the bishop of zanzibar he'd gone so lean when last i'd seen him he was rolling down king's parade arm in arm with chesterton and i couldn't get by it was an awfully sad change by the way you all look thinner well we're not in the trenches said margot we're leading busy and useful lives full of war activities besides our food costs us more but dorothy and i are fairly hefty still it's mother who's dwindling and alex though she's such a lazy little beggar alex is hopeless she does nothing but draw and paint she could earn something on the stage as a special star turn the girl who isn't doing her bit she doesn't so much as knit a body belt or draw the window curtains against zepps alex looked round from the window to stick out the tip of her tongue at margot la pauvre petite put in the belgian girl with a literalness that makes this people a little difficile in home life what can she do alex giggled in her corner margot said all right mademoiselle we're only ragging there's the post she went out to fetch it margot was a good girl but like so many others tired of belgians though this belgian was a nice one as strangers in a foreign land go alex hated and feared her whole nation they had been through altogether too much margot came back with the letters betty and terry she said with satisfaction betty's is for me and terry's for you mother terry was in france betty driving an ambulance car in flanders two for you alex alex took hers which were both marked on active service and put them in her pocket simultaneously her aunt eleanor began to read terry's aloud it was about flies and bread and jam and birds and some music he had made and was sending home to be kept safe and margot began to read extract from betty's about nails and bad roads and different kinds of shells and people and uncle gerald read bits out of the paper about hill sixty and hartmann's weilerkopf and zed el bar and the leon gambetta and liquor and mr lloyd george four alex slipped out at the window and limped round to the side door and into the house and upstairs to the schoolroom which he was allowed to use as a studio it was littered with things of hers easels chalks paints piles of finished and unfinished drawings and paintings some hung on the walls some of hers and some by the writer of the letter she took out to read he painted better than she did but drew worse or had in the long days ago when persons of his age and sex were drawing and painting at all alex read the letter 
It was headed obscurely with an R, some little figures of men, and two weeping eyes, which was where the writer was for the moment stationed. Every now and then a phrase or sentence was erased. The writer, apparently a man of honour, had censored it himself. His honour had not carried him so quixotically far as to erase the hieroglyphics at the head of the paper. It said, Dear Alex, since I last wrote we have been moved some miles. I mustn't, of course, indicate where to. It is nice country, less flat than the other place, and jolly distant ridges, transparent blue and lavender coloured. I'll do a sketch when we get into billets at the end of the week. My company is in the trenches now. Commodious trenches they are, the best in the line, but rather too near the people opposite for comfort. They're such noisy lunatics. It's eight o'clock now, and they've begun their evening hate. They do a bit every evening. The only creature they've strafed tonight yet is a brown rat, whom we none of us grudge them. It's interesting the different noises the shells make coming. You can nearly always tell what kind they are. If I was musical, I'd make a symphony out of them. I should think your cousin Terry Orme could. Some of them scream, thin and peevishly, like a baby fretting, some howl like a hyena, some mew like a kitten. Then there's Lord George's special, which says, Lloyd, 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 and then all the men shout, George! A page of further discursion on shells, too technical for reproduction here. Then resume next morning. I'm fairly sleepy this morning. We had to stand two from two to six a.m., expecting an attack which never came off. I wish it had. It would have been a way to get warm. We've had poor luck tonight. The Tommy who was sent over the top to look at the wire was made into a French landlord and our sergeant-major stoppered one with his head, silly ass. He was simply asking for it. It's my belief he was trying to get back to Blighty, but I hope they won't send him further than the base. You would like to see the dawn coming over this queer country, grey and cold and misty. I watched it through my perry for an hour. The Bosch lay perdu in their trenches, mostly, but sometimes you'd see one looming over his parapet through the mist. I want some tea now more than most things. You might write soon. You never answered my last, so it's generous of me to be writing again. How's everyone at the school, and how's life and work? Your enemies, the Ruski, seem to be in a tight place, don't they? Yours, Basil Doy. Alex read this letter rather quickly. It bored her. It concerned the things she least preferred to hear about. That was, of course, the worst of letters from the front. Life at Wood End, as at other homes, was full of letters from the front. They seemed to Alex like bullets and bits of shrapnel crashing into her world with her various tunes. She might, from her nervous frown, have been afraid of stopping one. She twisted up the letter into a hard ball with her thin, double-jointed fingers as she stared frowning at a painting on the wall. The painting was of a grey-green pond, floored with a thin, weedy scum. A hole-riddled, battered old tin rode in the middle of it. Reeds stood very quietly round. A broken boot was half sunk in the mud among them. 
Over it all brooded and slept a heavy June noon. It was well painted. Alex thought it the best thing Basil Doye had ever done. They had spent an afternoon by the pond in June 1914. Alex remembered it vividly. The sleepy brooding silence, the heavy fragrance of the hawthorn, the scum-green pond, the tin and the boot, the suggestion of haunting that they had talked of at the time and that Basil had got rather successfully into his picture afterwards. Those were curious days, those old days before August 1914, or rather it was the days ever since that were curious and like a nightmare. Before that, life was of a reality, a sanity, an enduringness, a beauty. It still was, only it was choked and confused by the unspeakable things that everyone thought mattered so much, but which were really evil dreams, to be thrown off impatiently. Underneath them all the time, the real things, the enduring things, green ponds, music, moonlight, loveliness, ran like a choked stream. Alex read her other letter, which was from her young brother Paul, and also written in a trench. The chief thing she thought about this was that Paul's handwriting was even worse than usual. He wrote in pencil on a very small piece of paper, and scrawled up and down wildly. He might have been twelve instead of eighteen and a half. Paul was rather a brilliant boy. When the war broke out, he had been a distinguished head of his school, and had just obtained a particularly satisfactory Oxford scholarship. His letters since he went to the front in March had been increasingly poor in quality and quantity. It made Alex angry that he should be out there. She thought it no place for children, and, as Paul's elder by nearly seven years, she knew all about his nerves. End of chapter 1